0: I'm Patricia Duff, and welcome to The Common Good. I also want to welcome our supporters of one of the great historic sites of our democracy who are with us today, Federal Hall. It's uh, in downtown New York on Wall Street, where our first president was inaugurated and our Bill of Rights was passed by our first Congress. And welcome to all our friends across the United States and to C-SPAN, which is covering this event today. So you've joined us to hear our incredible experts on the recent Supreme Court rulings from the newly constituted and very, very conservative Supreme Court. That Supreme Court has already upended the legal landscape affecting privacy, personal freedoms, federal and state powers, reproductive rights, the environment, gun control, access to voting, separation of church and state, and other charged issues. And they're just getting started. So what's ahead? At The Common Good, we work to offer informative discussions on critical issues of the day, such as the sharp turn of the Supreme Court, with the highest caliber thought leaders and experts, and tonight that includes our tremendous speakers. You can see their detailed bios on our site, uh, but we are thrilled to welcome first Jennifer Rubin of The Washington Post, where she is a columnist and a provocative writer. Hi, Jennifer. Thanks so much for joining us.
1: It's a delight. Thank you for having
0: me. She was trained and employed as a lawyer for two decades and then moved on to become a prolific writer and relentless reporter for a number of top media platforms. Her blog at The Post, The Right Turn, has been called a must read for political watchers. She's a former conservative, uh, but she was also the author of Resistance, How Women Save Democracy from Donald Trump. And we're very excited to welcome back a longtime reporter and analyst of the Supreme Court, Jeffrey Tubin. Hey, Jeffrey, thanks for coming back. Tubin was chief legal analyst for CNN, a longtime writer at the esteemed New Yorker magazine, and has written two major books on the Supreme Court, The Nine, Inside the Secret World of the Supreme Court, and The Oath, the Obama White House and the Supreme Court. Tubin previously served as assistant U.S. attorney in Brooklyn, so he's got his legal chops. To lead the conversation, we're thrilled to welcome back Kimberly Atkins Storr. She's an attorney and senior opinion columnist for the Boston Globe and the Emancipator. She's also served as the Boston Herald's Washington Bureau Chief, guest host of C-SPAN's Morning Collin Show Washington Journal, and Supreme Court reporter for the Massachusetts Lawyers Weekly. Thanks so much again, uh, Kimberly, for joining us. And I will now pass the conversation over to you.
2: Thank you so much, Patricia. It's an honor to be here for this very important conversation. And I will get right to it. I will start by asking each of our panelists uh, to give their thoughts, their reaction to the Supreme Court term that just wrapped up in June. I will start with Jennifer Rubin. What were your big takeaways?
1: Well, first of all, thanks again for having me. It's uh, good to at least virtually see everyone. This was certainly a historic uh, Supreme Court term. I don't think we could have, in recent memory, thought of a single term in which such radical changes from existing precedent were uh, were seen. Uh, Patricia was right; that it really spans the gamut from administrative law um, in disempowering the EPA to write rules pursuant to a statute to Prayer in the schools to, of course, Dobbs, and uh, perhaps even uh, beyond that, if we look at uh, Justice uh, Thomas's concurrence in that case, which seems to take aim at all of the 14th Amendment substantive due process. uh, I think it was also significant for the lack of judicial temperament and tone we saw from the justices, not only in their opinion, but out uh, in speechifying. They seem to have dropped all pretense of remaining apolitical. And both in writing and in his public speaking, in particular, Justice Alito has come across, quite frankly, as an angry screed. And um, he uh, gave a speech um, involving religion not too long ago that was um, really uh, beyond the pale in terms of a Supreme Court justice opining on religion and society. So I think what we have now is a full-throated example of a Supreme Court that does not consider itself to be moored to precedent, does not see itself to bother with the uh, appearance of judicial objectivity and sees themselves, frankly, as um, right-wing crusaders and a specific kind of crusader, one that is fulfilling um, what I and many others call the Christian nationalist agenda, um, which seeks to, frankly, use the state to promote um, a certain brand of Christianity um, and which seeks to ignore or minimize, frankly, um, the problems of race in our country, as we saw with um, their um, really evisceration um, now of two portions of the Voting Rights Act, uh, Section 5 and Section 2. So I think we are just beginning to see the imprint of this court. And we have some, uh, get to it, um, a troubling look ahead at some uh, cases that will come up next term um, that will also make news, um, I think, from my perspective,
2: in a very unfortunate way. Jeffrey Tubin, what was your biggest takeaways from the term that just ended?
3: well um if if I can sort of be a bit of a journalist on this, I, I think last term really began in nineteen eighty one because in nineteen eighty one, uh, Ronald Reagan had just won the presidency, and uh, the conservative movement recognized that they were going to have a chance uh, to shape the Supreme Court in a way that they really hadn't for decades because you know, under Earl Warren certainly, and even under Warren Berger, the, the the court was, certainly under Warren, a real engine of liberal change in the country. And conservatives decided, you know, we we want to use the court as well. And uh, students at the University of Chicago and at Yale law schools decided they wanted to start an organization that would um, you know, it'd be an opportunity to, to create a conservative agenda. And they got as their faculty advisors, Robert Bork at Yale Law School and Antonin Scalia at the University of Chicago uh, Law School. And they called themselves the Federalist Society. And the Federalist Society uh, was uh, was born then, and you know I, I think sometimes um, you know liberal, liberals talk about the Federalist Society as if it's something out of the Da Vinci Code that it's some like secret organization. There's nothing secret about the Federalist Society. Um, they the the agenda has been very clear since um, since the early 80s. Uh, Edwin Meese. Uh, who was Attorney General under Reagan was was you know very active in advocating their positions, trying to put judges on the bench. Um who Who would do it but but you know they, they their success was incomplete for a long time and and the Republican party was not the Republican party of today so so when Ronald Reagan put people on the Supreme Court, you know he, he put on Sandra Day O'Connor, who was never going to be an ideologue, but he put on Robert Bork, who couldn't get confirmed, and Antonin Scalia, who did get confirmed, and because Um, the chairman of the Judiciary Committee, a senator from Delaware named Joe Biden, uh, succeeded in stopping Bork. Uh, Reagan had to put on Anthony Kennedy, who was never going to be the conservative that Bork would have been. So there was this equilibrium at the court for a very long time. But I think as we all know, um, know, Donald Trump, uh, though he only served one term, got three appointments to the court, uh, engineered by Mitch, Mitch McConnell. You know Jimmy Carter is the only president in American history to serve a full term uh, without being able to appoint anyone to the Supreme Court. But just because of uh, the way uh, McConnell controlled the process, uh, uh, Trump got three votes. And now there are easily five and, and mostly six votes for a very conservative agenda at the Supreme Court. And that agenda has been percolating and moving even farther right as the Republican party has moved farther right. Um, and, and we see it, we saw it this term, uh, most specifically of course, in the Dobbs case overruling Roe v. Wade, um, the New York case um, a- expanding individual rights un- under the second amendment. But, but that's really only the beginning and um, I think in, in the cases that we're going to see uh, coming up uh, this term, but but also you know the Supreme Court does not work on a one or even a four year um, cycle. Um, if you look at the ages of the justices, um, you know we're in for a long time of conservative domination unless something very unexpected, unexpected happens. And um, it's it's likely to go across the board, and um, it's going to it started last year, uh, but it's it's very likely to pick up speed.
1: If I can't just respond to something that Jeffrey said, you know, when the Federal Society began, it was meant to be originally a corrective, as they saw it, to a very um, aggressive what they called activist court. And they were calling for conservative principles, which will sound funny to you now because they have nothing to do with the current right-wing justices, which is why I call them right-wing as opposed to conservative. They wanted... um, precedent to be um, respected. They wanted uh, incremental decisions so that you allow the body politic to make the most important changes and you didn't upset existing arrangements. Um, They wanted to respect um, states as the laboratories of democracy. Somehow that didn't make it into the gun decision, for example, uh, this year. So the principles that they articulated um, back in the 1980s bear very little resemblance to the very radical, very aggressive court that we see now that dispenses in the blink of an eye with 50 years of president and then goes on at least in a concurrence to declare war on 120 years of um, the Supreme Court president. So yeah. um, I, I think um, this is a very different animal than uh, people had expected perhaps in the 1980s with someone like
2: Sandra Day O'Connor
1: or um, yeah. Justice uh, Kennedy.
2: I want to start off with this idea of public opinion, since this is a, a public forum. Of course, the Supreme Court is not uh, governed by public opinion. They don't need to consider public opinion making their decisions. But it's quite stark that the current supermajority of conservative justices have issued opinions that seem to be going against public opinion, particularly the Dobbs decision. More than 62% of Americans uh, polled said they uh, supported upholding. Roe versus Wade, for example, contrast that from the Obergefell decision, for example, where Justice Kennedy talked about the fact that public opinion had shifted towards same-sex marriage and that the court was aligned with that. I'll start with you, Jeffrey. How important is it or how troublesome is it when Supreme Court decisions seem to go against where the American people are?
3: Well, you know, we are, we are perhaps heading to a moment where we're going to find out uh, the answer to that question, because you know, one, one of the touchstones, I mean, the, when I think about the court that I covered and wrote about at great length, the, the central figure. Uh, was Sandra Day O'Connor and, and Justice O'Connor in a very self-conscious way, and she would say this openly, was of the belief that the Supreme Court could never get too far out in front of where the country was on, on any issue. And, and you know, one, one of the things that I think is unfortunate is that um, she was the last person uh, to serve on the Supreme Court who had been an elected official. Um, there, there used to be a lot of former elected officials. There, there used to be a lot of um, non-judges uh, on the court. You know, the court that decided Brown v. Board of Education in 1954, not one of the justices had ever been a, um, a full-time judge before. You know, Earl Warren was governor of California. William Douglas was head of the SEC. I mean, it was, it, it was a very different kind of background. What's happened, and this has gone on in, in, in both sides, is that there are now a lot of law professors on the, on the Supreme Court. People who have not spent their careers really thinking much at all about uh, public opinion, that they view the court as, you know, a, as a body that interprets the Constitution and whether it's um, Justice Barrett at Notre Dame um, or, or Justice Kagan. At at Harvard, I mean, these are are people who, um, you know, did not come up through the political system. And and I think if you look at uh, particularly, I think the three, um, you know, the the leaders of this movement, uh, Justice Thomas, Justice Alito um, and, and Justice Gorsuch to a certain extent, you know, they don't care about public opinion. I mean, they really just don't care and they don't think it's their job to care about public opinion. I, I think that's that's a troubling thing, but you know what? It's, it's their Supreme Court, and they get to make the rules, and they get to write the, the opinions, and we're going to see if there is any meaningful pushback to that, because so far, I don't think there has been.
1: There's a saying that um, the justices should not be swayed by the passing fancies and preferences of the day, but they should be cognizant of... Um, the values, the associations, the traditions of America. And this court has kind of taken that and stood it on its head. The notion that substantive due process, the 14th Amendment, which is the basis on which we have um, many of the uh, decisions that are now at risk, was that even if something wasn't explicit in the Supreme Court, that it might be considered a fundamental right if it was um, cemented in the traditions of the country, the um, legal foundations of the country, the historical development. And the Supreme Court twisted that. And they said, if it wasn't a tradition at the time that the 14th Amendment was passed, which was in 1868, then we don't want to hear about it. And that's a very bizarre, very um, uh reactionary view because of course women had very few rights. Um, blacks had just gotten the right to vote and may say that was not a uh, a consideration. Um, people with disabilities had no um, uh, special rights. Um, and so they're asking us to adopt a framework not that reflects the fundamental values of the country now, but one that reflects the fundamental values over 100 years ago, close 150 years ago. And that's just a recipe for this clash that Jeffrey was talking about. And I wrote about this well before Dobbs that I think we're headed for the mother of all culture wars because you have a Supreme Court that no longer reflects the values of uh, the American people, doesn't think they should be looking to modern American legal structures or social structures or political developments. Um, And you have a country that is becoming more pluralistic, less religious, more diverse, and those two things do not match and do not mesh. And that is why I think you see a lot of um, talk now, a lot of tumult about term limits, about uh, expanding the court, because when we had this clash the last time at this level was of course the court packing scheme that FDR came up with. And the lesson from that is not that it didn't work, it's that it did because he was able to push back against the court. So it was no longer simply exercising a veto in a kind of legislative way over the New Deal. So I don't think we're necessarily yeah. going to get to that. And frankly, I think these justices are so stubborn and so um, really uh, focused on their own uh, milieu that they probably wouldn't be um, swayed. But I think that's what happens when the Supreme Court and society get very much out of whack.
2: I want to do a follow-up question, and you can start, Jennifer, uh, so that we have enough time to talk about some of the specific cases. But trust in the Supreme Court has fallen. It's fallen by 20%, according to a recent poll, since just 2020. And while this was happening, I took note that now-retired Justice Breyer was making the media rounds, talking about his book, pointing to this example that after Bush v. Gore, which was a very divisive case, Uh, the Supreme Court ruled, and whether or not you agreed with it, Americans seem to accept it. And as he's on this tour, making this point about the importance of trust in the Supreme Court and respect for it, the insurrection happened. And it seemed to completely undercut what he was saying. How important is it that trust in the Supreme Court is being eroded right now?
1: Well, we all know the famous aphorism that the court doesn't have um, soldiers, doesn't have a police force to enforce its um, rulings. And it only works on consensus that um, Congress, the president, state legislators, um, governors um, take this seriously and say, "Okay, that's the change in law. And now we're going to move on. And when that stops and when they're seen as a wholly political body then you run the risk that lawmakers um the political branches will say well that's a nice idea but i'm not going to follow that i'm not going to enforce that i'm not going to uh adopt that as the uh governing principle in our state or our locality so i think the notion that um public opinion or public support from the court isn't important, it's a very dangerous thing for the court to entertain because ultimately they do need the appearance and the reality, frankly, that they are doing something called judging, which is supposed to be fundamentally different than politicking and then partisan politicking. And I think when you see them manipulate um, decisions, manipulate even the docket um, in the so-called now famous um, shadow docket, which they really are making decisions without even explaining themselves, which is the fundamental principle of courts. I think you see that we're headed for um, quite a pushback. And I think their own behavior makes this worse. Um, The conflict about Justice Thomas and his wife's activities the fact that judges for a very long time now have um, made what people think are um, improper decisions to participate in cases in which they have an interest since they alone determine conflicts of interest. These are the sorts of things that I think will um, cause problems for the court itself as an
3: institution. Jeffrey? You know, I I, I hear that and and I understand it, but I'm not sure. I don't know if I agree. Really, you know, it's their candy store, and they, they like what? What's going to? Are people really going to not follow Supreme Court opinions? I, I just don't believe that. Uh, it's I, already I think, happening.
1: Look at all the the prosecutors who are saying we're not going to enforce these laws because we still think there's a fundamental right to a abortion. If you well, in will, fairness, that's a sign where what, the uh, other branches are simply not going to follow the Supreme Court. They're pretending it doesn't well, exist. Dobbs never happened.
3: That that's that's not really true, Jen. I mean, what 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 Dobbs said is that states can regulate abortions. And you know, in in many states, um abortion rights are 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 protected and are going to still be protected and and that's how it's going to be a state-by-state battle. I don't think that's inconsistent with what the Supreme Court said.
1: It is, because what these um, prosecutors are saying is that those state laws are illegitimate because they believe that the Supreme Court was wrong, that there is a constitutional fundamental right to abortion, and therefore they're going to go along as if that state law doesn't exist. They're not going to enforce it. Now you can say that well, that's lawlessness in refusing to enforce the state law, but that's a direct
2: result of what the Supreme Court has done. All so right, I, I want think to Jeffrey to answer so that we can get on to some of the cases. I,
3: I, I see your point. Um I th- that does not strike me as uh, failing to follow Supreme Court opinion, a, a Supreme Court precedent, I think that is, you know, a, an interpretation of the the prosecutor's own powers uh, in ways that they are choosing to um, uh, to, to exercise them. I, I, I guess just in in a, in a larger sense, I mean, this issue of public opinion um, is is one that I think is of interest to journalists and of interest. Um, to, uh, to politicians, but I don't think it's of interest to the Supreme Court majority. They're there. They have this power. As, as far as I can tell, no one is, uh, is refusing to obey their opinions. You know, Justice, Justice Breyer, whom I admire a great deal, you know, he just wrote this book. Um, And as much as I admire Justice Breyer, I disagree with every single word in that book, where he's basically saying, well, we're basically an apolitical institution. And uh, isn't it great that, you know, people disagreed with Bush v. Gore, but there were no tanks in the streets. I mean, if the bar is so low that, you know, no tanks in the streets is a win, uh, I think we're in, we're in pretty pathetic shape. Uh, I, I just think that this court is gonna do what they're gonna do and the idea that there is gonna be meaningful pushback in any branch of government is a pipe dream on the part of liberals.
2: So I wanna talk about uh, guns, the gun case, uh, New York State Rifle and Pistol Association v. Bruin. This was a case that we saw coming. In fact, uh, Justice Kavanaugh uh, in a a concurrence, I believe in an order essentially said, he believed that the Heller decision was being improperly applied and invited this challenge. One was brought and it extended the right to carry outside of the home striking down uh, laws that uh, particularly uh, in major metropolitan areas across the country. In that case, Jeffrey, it seemed very difficult for me as a legal al- analyst to explain that a conservative principle is one of states' rights when in this case the court was saying no, the states cannot decide what gun control measures best fits their jurisdiction, that they have to listen to the court. How does that square?
3: Well, let's just look back at the career of Clarence Thomas, Justice Thomas. You know, he's been on the court for almost 30 years Uh, or or more than 30 years now. Until um, that New York case, he had never written a major majority opinion, even though he was in the majority in many of the conservative opinions. That's because Chief Justice Rehnquist and Chief Justice Roberts thought that his views were simply too extreme, that he couldn't command a majority if it included people like Kennedy and O'Connor. But finally, he got his majority. And he was able to put forth a view of the Second Amendment that, um, you know, he's been advocating in dissenting opinions and concurring opinions, but never commanded a majority before. But he has a view that the Second Amendment is basically like the First Amendment in the sense that there is an absolute protection of freedom of speech. There is an absolute protection of the right to bear arms. Now, you know, there's been this long debate about what the Second Amendment really means. And for 200 years, uh, the court said it didn't confer an individual right. It it only talked about militias. But in 2000, 2008, Justice Scalia won that argument against Justice Stevens and there is now an individual right. But Justice Thomas feels that that individual right has not been interpreted expansively enough. And uh, this again is just the beginning of the deregulation of firearms protection in the United States. And you know, his his view is, well we don't allow, I mean, Thomas's view is we don't allow each state to make its own free speech rules because of the First Amendment. We don't allow each state to make its own gun rules because of the Second Amendment. That's that's the that's the view. And it commands a majority. of the court. And hence, yeah. we have
1: a situation where gun owners have many more rights to own whatever weapons they want than women have to essentially control their own reproductive Uh, freedoms because they do not follow that logic um, as they have um, delegitimized um, the 14th Amendment as a vehicle for individual rights. What was interesting about that case is something that the Supreme Court now loves to do, which is to do one thing and then deny it is doing it. Um, There's lots of language in uh, the majority opinion, the concurrence, that essentially says, we're not saying that Heller was wrong. Heller has some language that from my perspective is very reasonable, that if, of course you can regulate it. It has to, um, it, it, no, no right is absolute. But of course they treated very differently in practice and once again it's this kind of warped history that they engage in where justice thomas um you know skips past the last 150 years and goes back to a time where we didn't have automatic weapons we didn't have um mass violence and says oh you know there was no sort of um, restriction on people um carrying uh weapons either concealed or not in public and you know This use or misuse of history to justify a position he has long wanted to get to um, is, of course, um, one of the problems with this style of judging. And I do go back to um, the origins of this philosophy, which was that somehow this brand of judging was going to limit the discretion of judges. It was going to make it more objective. It was going to root it in something finite, the laws, the text of the Constitution. And we've seen it's just the opposite, that it is a recipe for rank uh, intellectual dishonesty and kind of a twisting of history and um, really legal principles. So the decision did not explicitly excise the part of um, Heller that um, progressives and moderates point to, which allows for um, regulation of handguns. But it sure suggested that on an individual basis, when it comes to the court, it's going to be pretty hard to uphold some of these because they take a very, very strict view of the Second Amendment, unlike other amendments that now they've decided can be dispensed with.
2: And it's important to note that reporting was that that uh, limiting language in Heller was done at the behest of Justice Kennedy, who is no longer on the court. Uh, I want to move to a subject, which I think is one of the most remarkable things from the last term, and perhaps uh, one of the most um, underappreciated aspects, is the Supreme Court's treatment of religion, particularly the vast expansion of the religious exercise clause and the um, truncation of the of the Establishment Clause in a number of cases. Each of these cases alone may not have been a, a, a big indication of that, whether it's a flag flying on Boston City Hall or a coach kneeling to pray or a reimbursement program in Maine. But it seems like a pretty sweeping change on this court that could have really far ranging implications. Jennifer, can you talk a little bit about that?
1: Sure. In a variety of settings, as you point out, um, they have essentially said that it's not enough for the state to refrain from acting, which is what gives us um, the free exercise clause. That they go so far as to intimate that the state actually has to assist religious institutions, as they did in the main funding case. Or that someone who is employed by a school district, he has to be permitted to have a prayer um, on uh, the center field of a football uh, team. So basically, one is now swallowing the other. These two principles have been in tension for the last 250 years. We don't establish a single religion, um, and. Um, At the same time, um, we allow people to exercise um, their various differences and in fact, to exercise the right to have no religion whatsoever. And it's pernicious in another way um, that people who are part of a religious minority as I am, are very sensitive to. And that is, it treats Christianity as a default. That if there is going to be prayer in school, what's the problem? Everyone prays that way. Well, everyone doesn't pray that way. Um, Jews don't pray that way. Muslims don't pray that way. And when they take the position that, um, in essence, um, the state can protect fetal life, that's just a made up term for saying, well, we think personhood begins at conception. And where does that come from? That comes from a certain Christian ethic that is in conflict with other religious traditions. So it's this combination of both seeking to use the state Um, to boost religion, to uh, facilitate religion, to facilitate their values, and a blindness to the diversity of religion, which was absolutely central in the founders' concern that we not spawn these religious wars, that we leave enough room for religious diversity. And I found the dissent in uh, some of these cases, and in particular, the main school case, uh, and also the the um, football prayer case, um, very compelling, because they talked about certain values of the founders. In that sense, the true conservatives on the court are now, frankly, the, the so-called progressive uh, judges, because they set the system up to avoid the religious wars of Europe, to prevent any kind of um, of state control of religion. It's bad for the religion and it's bad for the state, um, they thought. And now we seem to have a real merging of the two and a sort of blind spot that they don't seem to even realize when they're favoring one particular religious tradition because it's all they know. And I would just point out one Thing that was probably my favorite thing, um, and you have to take these things when you can find them because it was such an otherwise depressing uh, term. And that was when, in the um, football case, the prayer case, um, Justice um, uh, Sonia Sotomayor included a picture. Um, in her dissent. I don't think I've ever seen that actually, which basically was debunking the majority that was saying, well, this was just a voluntary little effort. It's just this guy out there on his own um, holding a little prayer. And the photo shows the entire team and most of the other team out there. And it was a pushback that we shouldn't be gaslit by these people. They are playing games factually, they're playing games legally, historically. And it was her little protest, which I thought was just perfect um, because there is a fundamental intellectual dishonesty going on here.
3: But so can actually, go ahead. Two, two quick points about uh, the religion clauses. One is this is really about the public schools, which conservatives now are starting to call government schools. Um, that um, basically the the big agenda here is to turn all of public education money into a voucher system where the money can go to a public school, a government school, or it can go to a parochial school. Uh, Lots of these cases, there's a case from Indiana about uh, about, uh, funding for playgrounds. It's about um, the conservative agenda here is to allow churches to get government money. That's a big part of what's going on here. Uh, the other part of it is to excuse anyone who um, claims a religious uh, conviction to abide by the rules that everyone else has to abide by. And that's, um, that was the Hobby Lobby case of a couple of years ago where uh, you know, this big company, Hobby Lobby, uh, was able to not pay for con- certain forms of contraception for its employees, even though the law said they should, because the owners uh, said they had a religious conviction against them. This, this you know, the, the shrinking of the establishment clause, the expanding of the free exercise clause is about getting money to church, government money to churches, and it's about uh, excusing religious people from following the rules that everyone else has to follow.
2: And I I wanna talk about one more substantive case and then move uh, to some broader topics again. And one was the EPA case uh, in which the court essentially ruled that the EPA cannot adopt rules aimed at curbing greenhouse gases unless Congress explicitly uh, authorized them to make these rules, essentially saying that it's up to Congress, a lawmaking body and not the EPA and their experts to make these rules. What do you think, Jeffrey, the implications of that is?
3: You know, I I admit to being somewhat obsessed by this particular area. Uh, It's it's obviously not as publicly uh, interesting as as abortion and same-sex marriage, but um, this is, and this goes back to the founding of the Federal society. This is about the war on the administrative state. It is basically, it is about limiting the power of government to regulate. And and the general mode, the, the general technique that's used is saying to administrative agencies, often in the environmental context, but not only, that you can only do what specifically Congress authorized in the words of the statute, and when you are talking about administrative agencies, the business they are in is interpreting uh, these laws, and um, the rubrics come in. You know, it's called the non-delegation doctrine. It's called the major question doctrine. It's called the Chevron uh, Chevron deference. But it all comes back to the same idea of using the courts to limit. Uh, what government can do. And when you think about why there has been so much money from people like the Koch brothers going to judicial elections and going to confirm Supreme Court justices, it's not because the Koch brothers care so much about abortion. It's because the Koch brothers want a a deregulated state where no one tells them that they can't emit uh, greenhouse gases and they uh, have to clean up the mess they make when when they when they make things. That's what's the, that's where the big money is in um, in the judicial confirmation fights. And again, with five votes and probably six with, with Chief Justice Roberts, um, that that's going to be um, a, a big part of what we see now. Interestingly, the the uh, the law that was just passed, the uh, what Build Back Better, that was written to try to address directly what the court has said uh, on these various doctrines so that the administrative agencies really can act to uh, limit uh, global warming. Whether the courts allow that to proceed, we'll see, but, but that's a fight that people should keep their eye on about this new law.
1: Once again, this was such a dishonest opinion because they said if Congress really wants the agency to do something, they will say so. Well, in this legislation, the very clause that they were challenging, Congress said you can use really whatever system you want to in terms of um, limiting greenhouse gases. They didn't say that um, greenhouse gas regulation was off the books, but they said You can use whichever system, whichever measuring system, whichever um, sort of uh, systematic way you want. Congress explicitly said that because there was actual discussion in the Congress that we don't know what the best system is, that this is an evolving area. So even when Congress says something, the Supreme Court doesn't take them seriously because they don't like it. And if you ever wanted to see a court that disregarded the express language of a statute. Look at what the court did in uh, the Brnovich case. Um, Justice Alito on the um, Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act, where he makes up rules out of whole cloth. He overrides um, clearly the intent of Congress. So these guys are kind of on a search and destroy mission. They are going to get to their end, no matter what it takes. And for those of us who (laughs) went to law school, and spent a the first career that I had, um, looking at decisions and trying to make rational predictions about what the court would do, trying to extract legal principles for interpretation. This is very disturbing. And I sort of wonder, what are are law schools teaching these days? Well, just figure out whatever Justice Thomas wants and you'll get to the right result. I mean, that's about the only advice you could give them because none of these principles seem to carry over from one case to the other, and they contradict themselves as we were talking about when you have guns on one side or you have abortion on the other. So uh, good luck to the law professors out there.
2: So I have a lot of uh, questions that I wanted to get through. There's only a couple of minutes before I turn to audience questions. So I'm gonna put two together. One was about uh, the speed at which these uh, legal precedents seems to be changing at the court, and another was about what's coming uh, in next term. And I think you can put those two together, both looking at some of the decisions and whether it's Dobbs or the religion cases or the EPA case, as well as what's on the docket for next term, which includes an affirmative action case, more voting rights cases, uh, cases on election law, and another environmental case. And there was a time not that long ago, maybe two years ago, where it seemed that the kind of changes we would see would be incremental. We saw, I don't know, five, six affirmative action cases in the last 15, 16 years since I started covering the court. And it was a sort of a chipping away of affirmative action, whereas it's pretty clear next term, it's gone. There was a long time, an idea that the, uh, that, reproductive rights would be chipped away, and now Roe v. Wade is gone. Why is it, Jennifer, that suddenly there is this acceleration in the changes, whether it's overturning precedent or just a complete difference in the way the court is adjudicating these cases than they have in the past?
1: It comes down to numbers. Chief Justice John Roberts has lost control of the court. Um, There are enough votes for these very radical giant leaps And whereas he was once the fifth vote um, and could therefore exercise some restraint, um, now he doesn't have that ability. You saw that in the Dobbs case where he's sort of howling in the wind. Well, couldn't we try 15 weeks instead? And the rest of the court says, no, we're off to the races. Forget it. Roe is dead. So I think it comes down to the fact that they now have six rather than five votes and they can dispense with them and that the institutional... Uh, concerns such as they were that he had are now uh, completely beside the point. But you're right that next term we're going to see perhaps even more um, and um, more dramatic changes in really the entire constitutional structure. Um, Two cases on affirmative action um, we've been kind of wheeling and needling around um, the issue now for a few decades. Ironically, um, Justice Connor was um, one who uh, bought uh, about 25 years or so of um, uh, affirmative action. But basically these two cases, um, the Supreme Court in all likelihood is going to say you can't use race at all. Um, it can't be one factor. It can't be, um, you know, a, um, a concern for quote diversity. They are going to make it illegitimate in its entirety. So that is going to be a major shift in uh, the composition and the um, really the, the running of universities. But that pales in comparison to um, the case that all of us are waiting uh, with, um, with great um, trepidation. Um, and that is the so-called um, independent state legislature doctrine, which basically says that because of um, the wording of the Constitution, that the ultimate decision maker um, for any election law is a state legislature and they don't have to pay attention to their own state constitution. They don't have to be um, subject to the interpretations of the court, even if those state constitutions that put them um, and empower them to be the legislative branch include um, a specific provision for judicial supervision. So basically it's handing the keys to the state legislatures, which we know um, now in many cases are dominated by very radical Republicans, and say, do what you will, make up the rules. And this will have ramifications not only in terms of um, phony electoral school schemes in the future, but yeah. gerrymandering the entire operation of um, of judges and of want, uh, election wanna... I give if, I could your-
3: just, if I could just say, you know, to answer your question of like, why did this happen? Why now? I, I think it goes back to the evolution of the Republican party. You know, when Ronald Reagan was elected, he was, he was sort of barely anti-abortion. Uh, he had signed an abortion rights bill in California. The, the Republican party has gotten a lot more conservative, especially on these issues. And Donald Trump, very much to his political credit, Recognized this during the 2016 campaign, and he embraced a right-wing judicial uh, philosophy and made a list of his Supreme Court appointments, which did a lot to unify his Republican support when he was running against running against Hillary Clinton. And that and that's why uh, you have Gorsuch, Barrett, and um, and Kavanaugh instead of the two George Herbert Walker Bush appointments, Clarence Thomas and David Souter, who didn't even agree on anything. And that's why you had Ronald Reagan appointing Sandra Day O'Connor and Anthony Kennedy and Scalia, who often didn't agree. This has been a much more polarized moment when it comes to judicial uh, appointments, and Republicans are going to appoint very conservative justices. That's part of why they run for president, and that's why they now have a supermajority, because Mitch McConnell uh, manipulated the Senate process to make sure they had it.
2: So I'm gonna do a lightning round before we go to audience questions. Uh, We've gotten in various forms uh, questions about reforming the court, whether it is expanding it, term limits or something else. Lightning round, how likely is court reform to happen? Noting that we had an entire commission (laughs) that was devoted, uh, convened by the president and devoted to this and they basically shrugged and disbanded. So I'll start with you, Jeffrey. How likely is court reform to happen?
3: Is there is there a percentage lower than zero? Uh, Because that's that's the one I look, I think it would be great. I think there should be 18 year term limits. Um, Each president should get two appointments. Um, It's a great idea. You'd have to amend the Constitution. Never going to happen.
1: I guess it depends upon whether Democrats can ever manage to get a, um, a majority in the Senate that would do away with the filibuster, control the House and control the White House all at the same time. Um, and that's what it would take. And in terms of court reform, that's an even bigger haul than some of the other things that um, Democrats would like to do in terms of voting reform. You probably don't have even... 50 votes, maybe not even 48 or 47 votes on the Democratic Party for court reform. The president himself has kind of spoken out against this. And I think um, the notion that even statutorily we can kind of implement uh, term limits is a little bit problematic. It's uncertain whether that would be necessary. Um, It would be far easier, frankly, if the Democrats ever have that Um, Trifecta um, to frankly just expand the court. Um, We've had nine justices for a very long time as opposed to the 13 circuits that we now have. And uh, speaking, you know, in terms of uh, other systems we have a comparatively very small uh, Supreme Court compared to other Western democracies.
2: All right, I want to uh, invite Patricia back to uh, help navigate the audience questions, Patricia.
0: Hi, thank you so much. I'd like to go to Michael Murray to start with. The Supreme Court, or the justices on the court, operate without the benefit of rules of uh, ethics or conduct, and it's troubling to me. I'm wondering if there's any solution for that. And it's related to the notion of Supreme nominees to the court saying one thing to Congress in order to win confirmation, and then getting on the court and making decisions
2: in direct contradiction to what they promised they would do. Jennifer, what's your action to that?
1: Well, the Supreme Court has said that they will voluntarily adopt some of the ethics rules that apply to lower courts. Um, But they are the only judges of it. There's no one else that's going to oversee it. And they haven't formally agreed to bind themselves to it. Um, There is an argument that um, the only body that can regulate itself is the Supreme Court itself, Um, that there is nothing in the Constitution saying that Congress can pass a law and they have lifetime appointments as long as they are on good behavior. Um, and of course, should Congress try to pass a ethics um, law that would apply to Congress, guess who would evaluate it? Um, so um, I think that's one that probably we would only get with a um, a, uh, a constitutional amendment. As far as the general um, process of uh, confirming judges. This is a complete train wreck from any perspective. They aren't edifying. They aren't honest. um, They make the judges even more partisan than they already are. And I, for one, would be in favor at this point of um, completely revamping the system, maybe just going to written questions. And frankly, any lawmaker who takes to the bank whatever a justice says, unfortunately now, under <laughs> under oath in a confirmation hearing, they shouldn't expect that the, that justice
2: will necessarily live up to it. Jeffrey, just as a follow to that, the Judicial Conference, which is in charge of enforcing ethical rules to federal judges, which Uh, lower court federal judges, as Jennifer said, are bound by uh, for the Supreme Court, they get to decide what the remedy is themselves. So they're not bound by it. It's led by Chief Justice John Roberts. Does he have any power here in changing the way the Supreme Court operates?
3: There could probably be a little bit of change around the margins. But I I mean, again, I don't mean to be too... you know, pessimistic or hopeless about this, but I don't think it's going to happen. I, I mean, I, I don't have a lot to add on this subject, but I'd rather let let more questions come in.
0: Okay, then let's go to Linda Luca's a question about a court expansion.
3: Yes, uh, thank you. To uh, both uh, stars today, um, did Congressman Nadler and Senator Markey actually write and file legislation together um, proposing to expand the court, realizing that you've, you know, said less than zero, um, as, as a proposition for it, how does that get any discussion, um, in 2023? Well, it was, you know, it has been discussed, there was the commission, um, that, uh, that Jen mentioned that was led by Bob Bauer, um, the former the former White House Counsel, and, uh, and and you know and I think most Americans think that the number of justices is fixed in the Constitution, and it's not. I mean, it's just a law like any other law uh, that sets the number, and it's only since President Grant was in office, which is a long time ago, but not the entirety of American life, um, that the Supreme Court has had nine. Um, the, the number fluctuated a lot in the first uh, 100 years or so. I think it would probably be a good idea to expand the number of justices, although I am sympathetic um, to the argument that you know, if, if one party starts expanding the justices when it does expanding the number when they don't like the decisions, the other party could do the same. I mean, I, I think that's probably a risk worth taking, but it is something worth taking into consideration. But this discussion is completely academic because it ain't happening.
2: I just say a reason that a bill that is filed doesn't move is because there is a whip count. And if there is not enough support to pass it, it's usually not sent to the floor for a vote. I mean, that happens with any bill, including this one.
1: I would put in a word, however, for something that is possible and that has been actually raised in a bipartisan fashion, and that is expansion of the lower courts. Um, We have um, a relatively small judiciary, and there have been... as late as I think uh, the uh, 2000s, there have been bipartisan um, moves to try to expand, not in terms of the circuits, but the number of judges that we have to, for one thing, um, clear some of the backlog. And it is very important we do that not only for the administration of justices, but because our judiciary is so unbelievably undiverse. And it is the only way that we're going to have enough turnover. It will take 100 years otherwise to approach anything um, in which the uh, judiciary um, resembles America. And um, when I did a piece for it recently, I was frankly stunned by the numbers. Uh, President uh, Biden has done a yeoman's job. But increasing, um, for example, the uh, number of Black uh, American women from 1% to 2 or 3% is not Really uh progress. So um, that's something that
0: we could actually achieve and might be worthwhile. Okay, we'll go to Richard Gorman and back to Don if we have time. In the late 60s, under the Johnson administration, when he had nominated Justice Fortas to be the head of the Supreme Court, Terry Ford said the Congress of the United States can impeach a Supreme Court justice for any reason it wants. If they get control of the House and the Senate, can they impeach some of the more flagrant justices on the present court?
3: Under the law, they could, but I don't see any prospect for that happening.
1: And remember, there's very high bar for removal from office. Um, the impeachment clause is basically a dead letter in the Constitution.
3: There's never been a Supreme Court justice uh, impeached, much less removed from office. Doesn't mean
0: it couldn't happen. Done, yeah. Okay, we've got time for one quick question from John McAuliffe, or did you? Did Jennifer? Did you have something you wanted to add to that? I mean, my premise is that this court is going to do some rulings in the next term that are going to infuriate people as much, if not more, than they have already, and that there's going to be momentum, assuming the Democrats hold the House and Senate there's going to be momentum for structural
3: change. So the question is, is it better to approach that with the two additional seats, taking back the ones that McConnell stole, or is it better to go for four seats, which would actually change, get it back to the majority that would have happened if he hadn't stolen those seats? Beats me. Uh, I, I mean, I'm sorry, I just don't see any of that happening two or four. So I, I can't answer your question, really.
1: I will say Can this, I, though, that Dobbs is a interesting example that people should be wary of what they wish for. I'm sure the Supreme Court did not expect their decision to create a huge political backlash that may be sufficient to deny Republicans their red wave elections. And this is what happens when the Supreme Court gets out of kilter, that there is a political um, reaction. And now there is, um, I think, um, very much um, the possibility not only of a better outcome for Democrats in November, but also that state legislatures, state initiatives, um, the one we saw in Kansas, will have some momentum. Um, So I would uh, uh, be interesting to see how uh, the country reacts uh, to Dobbs. Um, And I think the court severely underestimated uh, the
0: social and political upheaval they were creating.
3: Totally agree with that.
0: I wonder how they could <laughs> not get that a little bit better in focus. You all were extraordinary. We were thrilled to have you today. Kimberly, thank you for uh, running this whole thing. Jennifer and Jeffrey, I hope we can have you all back. You're just extraordinary. This is not a story that's going away, so um, we will need you going uh, forward. Thank you so much for today. Hope to see you um, at our next, our next event. Thank you so much for joining us, and thank you, Kimberly, Jennifer, and Jeffrey.